0: Well, we're in a sermon series in the book of 1st Corinthians and we've come to 1st Corinthians chapter 6 The first section of the book deals with divisions that existed in this fledgling church And then this next section deals with the topic of sex and sex problems And I have to tell you I don't I really don't relish talking about uh, sexual ethics and sexuality for a host of reasons Um, you know sex is not just a it's not simply a philosophical or um, theological topic of interest. It's a deeply personal subject that touches on some of our greatest joys and, frankly, our, our greatest pains. I mean, all of us have experienced sexual brokenness either you know, because of our own actions or because of the, the actions of others. I mean, next sex is, is clearly a cultural flashpoint, as you obviously know. There's probably no bigger uh, issue right now than um, stuff related to LGBTQ versus, you know, heterosexual normativity and, and you know, all that, that goes with that. Uh, it's a topic where there's tons of hurt, and the church has caused, uh, has been a source of that hurt. There's very strong feelings, very strong fears And I say, finally, nobody looks out on our society. Nobody looks out there and says, we have a a healthy view of sex. At the same time, nobody looks in here and says that we have a healthy view of sex either. Because too often, the message has been that sex is ugly and dirty, uh, so be sure to save it for someone you really love. That's what the church has said um, way too frequently. Or, you know, out there, the message has been that you can hook up with whoever however whenever whatever um, with no regard for anyone else because all that really matters is just you know getting your dopamine fix and neither of those neither of those are true and neither of those um, are good and healthy I'll just say finally that if today is your first Sunday at Reconciled of, of all the weeks and we're missing a bunch of people today maybe they saw the topic and they decided they didn't want to come but I, I've been preaching here for a little over a year, first time that I've talked on this topic. Um, I don't think the church knows how to speak very well about sex and, and sex issues, and I'd admit that I don't know how to speak very well about it either, and so I don't do it very frequently. Um, but it's our passage, and, um, and, I, and I must, because, uh, because even though I'm no expert on this topic, I do kind of keep coming back to the fact that if there really is a creator God, who's up there and who cares about the flourishing of his creation, then like surely that God would want to give us some instruction on a topic that matters so much to our lives um, to show us a better way. And so actually this is going to be a, a discussion that goes for three weeks. Uh, today we'll talk about sexual ethics, next week we'll talk about marriage and sex, and then the final week we'll talk about singleness and purity culture. And, and it, it'll all come from the, the text that we're reading. Um, but before we read right now, let's pray about this again because it's a big deal. Oh Lord, uh, we come back to you in prayer and we say to you that this is a deeply personal issue. Um, some of us, some of us have been sexually abused. Some of us are are struggling with pornography. Some of us are married and we have really unhealthy sex life together in our marriage some of us are unmarried and we have an unhealthy um, sex life some of us are wrestling with our own sexuality and when it comes to these issues Lord it feels like too often like we're alone in church That these are the things we can't talk about in church we we often feel like we're the only ones who are s- struggling with these things but you know better than that you know us you know where each one of us is today. And, and so you know exactly what message every one of us needs to hear. And so please speak to us now. Please speak to us in our, in our struggles and our brokenness. And show us Jesus. Show us Jesus' better way. And let him be the savior and healer that leads us into a healthier place when it comes uh, to this important area of our lives. And we sincerely offer this prayer to you in his name, amen verse 9, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Uh, From time to time in Paul's writings, he will provide what is essentially a a sin list, and the sin lists in Paul's writings serve as sort of the boundaries for the ethical community, or the the, the community, the ethical boundaries for the community that is being formed, and Paul's not the only one who does sin lists. Jesus, if you read his, him in the gospels, he does it too, but one such list begins in verse 9. It's it's a, it's a tough one. He warns these Corinthian young Christians. He says, uh, Don't you know that, you, that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? He says, Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males. No thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. When we read through these sex lists, normally we focus in on—I I said sex lists. <laughs> there there I, I proved my point. When we read the sin list, we normally focus on the sexual sins. But in fact, you notice, like, he says the greedy will not inherit the kingdom of God. I mean, greed is, greed is one of those categories that's notoriously difficult to define. I mean, given the fact that I think I read somewhere—you've read this too—like two out of every five people on the face of the planet Earth— live on less than three dollars a day? How much money do you have to have before you're greedy? Um, He says that thieves won't inherit the kingdom of God. I mean, who of us under the age of 50, like, isn't involved in some form of digital piracy? (laughs) Like, how many times do you have to steal before you're considered a thief? Uh, How much alcohol do you have to drink before you're a drunkard? That's listed how unkind can your words be before you're verbally abusive? Like, the sinless, they do open a whole can of worms, and we could probably spend an entire sermon just talking about those issues. There are various interpretive approaches to Paul's sinless, and a, and a common interpretive approach is to emphasize the simple fact that every one of among us is guilty of something in this list, of course, <laughs> right? Every, every one of us is, is sexually immoral, because a, a who among us doesn't lust, or who among us doesn't steal, Who who is never abusive with their language, we could go on, on and on, and so this interpretive approach to the list stresses um, how much we need a savior. It says we're all guilty, and that's why we got to flee to Jesus Christ for his mercy, and, and, you know, amen, amen to that, but that's not actually the direction Paul takes with it. Instead, he emphasizes the, the distinctive change that comes upon a Christian's life when you begin following after Jesus. And he puts it this way in verse 11, that some of you used to be like this, but you were washed. You know, washed certainly carries with it the connotation, the imagery of baptism. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ um, and so, yeah, sanctified—technical language for uh, you—you've been made holy. You've been set apart to worship God. You've been set apart to serve others in a new way of life. And then, justified is another one of those technical words that simply means that you're forgiven. You're no longer guilty of your sins. And so, what Paul is trying to get at is that when you become a Christian, there is. There is a new trajectory to your life there 's a new trajectory now does does that mean you, you will never be sexually immoral again? Does it mean that you will never steal again? No um, probably not but but at least the, the, the desire your heart 's desire is to try and move in this direction, like however feeble, however faltering are your steps. Um, you, you know, you're a bird with broken wings, but at least you're, you're trying to fly towards the light. At least you're trying to migrate home. Um, at least that's how I, how I best understand it. Um, more could be said, but I should go on. Verse 12. So Paul in verse 12, he's responding dialogue style to a letter that the Corinthians wrote back to him. And, and particularly a series of popular Corinthian slogans. So it's a back and forth. You see it through the parentheses here. They write, everything is permissible for me, verse 12. And Paul retorts, but not everything is beneficial. See, they were very much into, like, oh, our, our, our Christian freedom. Everything is permissible for me, you know, now that I'm full of the Spirit. But Paul says, but I will not be mastered by anything. And then the final one, food is for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God, Paul says, will do away with you know, both of them. They thought that, um, basically they thought that all that really mattered was the immaterial portion of your, your being, your soul, the, your spirit. The, whatever you do with your body I mean, it doesn't matter. Bodies for food, stomach, it it, it doesn't matter. And and Paul's going to basically sharply disagree and says, yes, it does matter what you do with your body. Continues in verse 13. For the body, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And then he uses the resurrection of Jesus as an example. God raised up the Lord, Jesus, and he will also raise us up by his power. Uh, don't you know that your bodies are part of Christ's body? And, and he asked the question, so should I take a part of Christ's body and make it part of a prostitute? Absolutely not. Don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? Here he quotes Genesis 2, for the scripture says, the two will become one flesh, but anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality, Every other sin a person commits outside of the body, uh, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. It's just really important to note, he's not saying that sexual sins are the worst sins. They're not the worst sins. What he's saying is just that they, they affect us in ways that perhaps, you know, they affect the body uniquely and in ways that other sins do not. And in conclusion 19 and 20, this is amazing. He says, Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. There's a, a book that's coming out later this month, and maybe it already has been um, published or put on Amazon. It's, it's one I want to read. It's written by a well-regarded uh, English historian. He does a really cool podcast if you ever want to listen to it on history. His name is Tom Holland, and the book's title is Pox, War and Peace in Rome's Golden Age. You know, authors, they'll go on the interview tour, and they'll give a bunch of interviews as a way to promote their book. And a recent interview he gave was, the topic of all things was on Roman sex, you know, sex life in the Roman Empire. And he goes on into a great deal of detail that I won't go... um, into it as much, but when you hear his description of it, like, frankly, the sexuality in Roman Empire was depraved, and I don't use that word lightly. Um, this, is, this, is, this is the horrible reality uh, of the case, like, the great erotic ideal for a Roman man at the time that Paul was writing this letter was to dress boys up and to make in makeup and have their hair done in feminine styles, dress them up as girls, they called them the delicati, and then, then rape them. Like, basically, if you were a, a man with power and privilege, you were... Effectively allowed to rape anybody below you on the social hierarchy. Women were raped. Slaves were raped. Boys were raped. At will. I was reading another article um, about archaeologists. As they do digs in Italy, from time to time, they will dig up a Roman brothel. And you say, well, how do they know that it's a brothel that they have just dug up? Because it's not like there's going to be spears there from... from a." a, a to show that they you did know soldier. How do they know? And the answer, the answer is that they always find a, a pit with baby's bones inside of it, baby boys. See, the girls that were born to the prostitutes, um, those girls were kept by the owners of the brothel, and they would just be raised in prostitution, just like their mothers. But the baby boys were of no use to them, and so they were aborted on site. And what stands out as you, as you consider it in greater detail is that the Romans didn't see this as being in any way morally depraved. Like it was perfectly normal. Um, the world that, as I said, the world that Paul and Jesus was speaking into, men of higher status, even if they were married, were allowed to demand sex with anyone of lower social status for whatever reason and in whatever way. Um, which meant that, you know, prostitutes, like for them to go and have a prostitute, it's like for you and me to go grab a cup of coffee. It it was that common. Um, there was almost something wrong with you as a Roman man if you didn't do whatever sexual thing you wanted to do with those below your social status. You know, when the famous ancient Roman historian Livy, I think writing, you know, a couple millennia ago, was speaking about the Roman Empire. He proudly proclaimed about the empire, quote, that uh, we are known across the world as having the justice punishments. And yet, it was a society that flung people to the lions, that sponsored gladiatorial combats, that staged rapes in the Colosseum before slaughtering the victims like blind spots. (laughs) You know, every every single culture has massive, massive blind spots. Why bring this horrible stuff up? Um, And maybe I've gone into too much gratuitous detail, and if I did, I apologize. But the reason that I bring all this horrible stuff up is because when you and I read the sex passages of the Bible, we don't think about that. We don't think about it at all. When we see the word sex or you know, thou shalt not do this and thou shalt not do, do that. We are coming to those passages, interpreting it entirely through like the cultural baggage of the American sexual re- revolution <laughs> and, you know, like all of the, the cultural, just the prism of the American culture wars that we're still in the middle of over human sexuality. The reason I bring up the horrible stuff is is to help you see that if you lived in a world like that, what Paul was preaching, what Jesus was preaching, would be absolutely revolutionary good news, liberating good news um, to everyone who didn't have power, to every woman that was there, to every slave that was there, to every boy that was there, to every little girl that was there. Um, It was liberating good news for for the convoluted sexual lives of the people in Corinth. And we don't think about that. We don't. You know, what Paul and Jesus were doing is they were preaching the Creator's design. He's, they're taking us back to the garden, back to Genesis 2. The, the Creator's design, like, to, to return back to the, the way things were in the beginning, which is so different then uh, the prostitute house the the temple of Aphrodite that we've talked about it throughout this series that the beautiful temple up on the Acropolis looking over the city of Corinth had some like thousand temple prostitutes there And, and the garden is so different than that place so what is a Christian sexual ethic before someone rolls their eyes at me um in answering that, you just you do need to understand how this Christian sexual ethic overturned the older Greco-Roman sex ethic that privileged males in the aristocracy. What is the ethic? It's that sex is designed by the Creator to be a mutual, whole self-giving, consensual, lifelong covenant between a man and a woman um, in marriage. The Christian sexual ethic was something that hadn't, hadn't probably even hardly been conceived of before. It was an ethic that was based on mutuality. Mutual, it was a whole giving of myself to you, not just my body, but all that I am. I'm, I'm giving it to you, to another person in marriage. And, uh, you know, sure, today, man and woman, right, that's very contentious. But you have to understand— Back then, it was liberating. And the other thing you need to understand is that this Christian sexual ethic that I just put up on the screen there has been agreed upon by all branches of the Christian church. It's not like it's just like, oh, a few of us came up with this. No, this is the universal consensus. I mean, if we talk about the holy Catholic universe, this is a Catholic consensus that stretches over to the Orthodox, to the Coptic, to the Roman Catholic, and to the Protestant, and stretches over all the continents of this world. It is a multi-ethnic ethic that has been embraced by the global church. And, of course, it's being pushed back on right now, primarily from the Western European church and the American church. But it's the ethic that has been practiced by billions of people across more cultures than any other, any other position. And what made, what made it such good news is that it it did. It protected women. Um, it protected those of lower social status. Like, they had never been protected before. Like, no longer could a man do whatever that he wanted to, to do with them. I made a short list here of, you know, number one, it, how it introduced rights and protections. You know, It said to women, you have sexual and marital rights. You you have the right to deny any sexual advances against you of any sort, no matter where you are on the social uh, pyramid, the hierarchy. The only acceptable, um, permissible sex is the sex between you and your husband in a a loving, lifelong covenant of marriage. Um, And even that sex, marital sex, was consensual sex. Number two, it introduced the idea of consent to sexual relationships, which that had never been done before. I mean, today we're like, well, of course consent is a must, but history shows for centuries there was no such thing as consent until, you know, Christianity normalized it. Number three, as we will see next week, it it was based on a radical egalitarian principle that the husband's body belongs to his wife's. And the wife's body belongs to the husband's. But that first part, the husband's body belongs to the wife? What? That had never been said before. (laughs) Never said before um, that they were each for each other. And and I'll speak about misuses of that particular verse in chapter 7 next week. And then finally, it's based on the Bible's creation story of sexual difference and complementarity. Most people don't know this. In fact, I didn't know it until I read it quite recently, because it's really tough to pick up in English. But you may remember in the creation story how God provides—so he's got Adam created, and he's going to provide, quote, a a suitable helper for Adam to be his wife— and the translation that we used earlier, instead of using the word suitable, it used corresponding, but it can go either way. Well, there's a single Hebrew word behind suitable and corresponding, and it is this one, kenegdo. And it's broken up into two parts, ke, or ke which means as, like, or similar. So she's similar to him. I mean, they're both human. But neged, which also means which means something like opposite, in front of, or against. So when God, when God is trying to figure out, okay, who's going to be joined up with this man, he says, I need to find somebody who is connected. Ke- ke- neg- and it cap- that captures Eve's similarity to Adam, and then, of course, her sexual difference. That they're alike, but they're different. I know some Christians, some um, smart Christians look at the creation story and they say well sure that that was descriptive the creation story tells us what happened but it's not prescriptive it's it's just it's not telling us the way things ought to be it's just telling us the way things were in the the Christian narrative narrative of the beginning the reason that I don't find that position very very convincing is because do you know who the most prominent person in the bible was who looked at the creation story as prescriptive rather than simply descriptive was jesus of course (laughs) because jesus is the one um who who goes back to genesis 2 in his debates uh, about marriage with in this case the pharisees at one place in this gospels he's having a disagreement with the pharisees about their a very lax view of divorce and he says to them you may recall these words haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female? So he, he's, obviously he's focusing on um, their, their sexual difference, yes? And said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. See, he sees the Pharisees' lax views of divorce as a departure from the original design of the creator, which was in the garden, that the two would become one, and that that one would be permanent, that the two that are similar but different would be, would come together in in marriage, and that that would be etched into the creator, created order. In other words, if you're still following me, the creator's design was for a lifelong one-flesh union, Again, where men can't do whatever they want to do with whoever they want. They can't sleep wherever they want. They can't divorce whoever they want. The creator's one flesh union, um, his design involved mutuality and intimacy and self-commitment for both parties, where basically both parties say, I I belong to you completely, um, exclusively to you in every respect. And that was just something that nobody said to women in Corinth in the first century. But in the Christian church, they were expected. Moving on. Um, What's sex for? (laughs) I know I'm pretty much almost out of time on the sermon, and the sermon is a little on the long side today. But what's sex What's it for? Last August, a 1952 Topps Mickey Mantle baseball card sold for $12.6 million dollars. Uh, if you bought it, you probably have too much money. You probably are in the greedy category that we talked about <laughs> earlier. But but what if whoever bought the Mickey Mantle card? What if that person you know brought the baseball card home and decided, you know what? I'm going to use this for a coaster. Uh, well, we would say, you know, he doesn't, she doesn't, they don't. They don't know what it's for. They don't, they don't really know what it's for. And these these Christians in Corinth, they didn't understand. What sex was for, because they, they had such a low view of the body. I, I alluded to, to this earlier. They, they were saying, like, it doesn't, who, who cares what you do with your genitalia? Like, all of that's going to pass away. What, what just really matters is our immaterial spirit and our spiritual consciousness. Um, that's the part of our humanity that matters. I want you to imagine, in, in Corinth, a younger Corinthian man named Linus, which was a, a typical Greek name who works as a tradesman, he's apprenticed to his father, and his uh, father says, well, son, son, we're going to go up to the temple of Aphrodite today, uh, up on the Acropolis, to the, you know, to the goddess of beauty, love, and procreation, and you follow what I do. And so Linus and his father, they they go up, they uh, stand there, they pick out whichever they choose, uh, whichever prostitute, a boy or a girl, um, An older man or a woman, they go into a hut, they lie on the floor, and then afterwards, you know, they might burn incense to Aphrodite, to appease her, so that they, um, and they might uh, eat some of the meat that had been sacrificed on the altars, because, I mean, kind of a funny thing about temples, they're not only brothels, but they're restaurants, too. Linus and his father, up at the temple of Aphrodite, a very realistic situation in the first century, and you know what? Linus was a Christian. That was the situation that Paul was writing into. Because Linus, Linus is still thinking and acting according to the cultural norms that was just common to his whole way of life up in, until up that point. It doesn't matter what you do with the body. But yes, it does. It absolutely does. Um, I've spent a lot of time on talking about the Christian sexual ethic. And, and I know that probably haven't convinced everyone. And I just want you to know that even if, it, even if you disagree with it, it's important to understand where it came from and the changes that not only it made to their world, but so many of the things that we think about, I already mentioned consent, um, that are just seem normal to us in our world. Well, guess what? Where it came from? It came from this sexual ethic. Since I don't have much time left. Okay, here we are. What is sex meant for? Um, I think the key verse is verse 16. You know, here's where Paul goes back to the garden and helps us see how the garden is so different than Aphrodite's temple. He says, don't you know that, verse 16, don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? For scripture says the two will become one flesh. If, if I could put it as simply as possible, sex is for, it's for oneness, it's for intimacy, It's for knowing the other person and being known by them exclusively. Um, It's a physical expression of this whole life intimacy that is supposed to be part of a marriage. It's something that actually is supposed to strengthen the covenant bond of marriage. And I dare say, like, is that how people think about sex today? No, we don't think about sex that day. Today we treat sex mostly like a, a bodily appetite right? Sex is, if you got an itch, you scratch it. If you're hungry, you eat. It, if you want sex, just get sex. I mean, sex is treated like a dopamine dispensary, right? Sex today is not, is not for oneness, intimacy, knowing the other person, knowing them exclusively, because you can't do that with porn. <laughs> no, it's just, it's a dopamine shot where you are the focus, where you're the drug addict. I mean, sex today is just, I want sex. And then God's taking us back to the garden and say, no, What my design is, is for you to say, I want you to the other person. I, I, I see you. I choose you. I love you exclusively. Um, Till death do us part. It's, it, it's supposed to be about me knowing you and, and together us, like building us you know, and it's it's best when it's expressed in a, in a whole life of emotional, uh, spiritual, and physical union. The reason people take marriage vows uh, is not to say "I love you." Like <laughs> when you're standing in front of people on your in your wedding, everybody knows that you're in love. You stand up in front of God and all your friends um, and take vows because. You're really saying, when I find out what you're really like, and when you find out what I'm really like, I promise and you promise that I'll stay. It's a one-flesh union. It's a pledge that I will always love you, and I will always be there for you. That pledge till death do us part is what makes us feel safe enough to be completely vulnerable with the other, to be naked and unashamed, um, and to give our whole selves fully to them. yeah okay I'll finish the sermon next week I'll try and talk more practically and positively about I think I'll try to uh how to how can we cultivate healthier um healthier views and healthier healthier sexual relationships within marriage but and I might fail cataclysmically (laughs) because you normally you don't do that in sermons but what I want you to know is at the end of the day you're not your own for you were bought with a price. Those words can sound, they could be spoken in a kind of a scoldy kind of way, right? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. It can, no, what he's really saying is, you're not your own. Like, you are his, and he is yours. That's what Christ has pledged you from the cross. You know, every marriage, even the best marriages, come to an end. There is only one person who can say, who can truly say that I love you forever. And that person's Jesus. I mean, he made a promise to you on the cross that he would purchase you with his very life so that you are his. That's what Paul is saying to them. You are united to him. Like th- there is only one who has given himself to you so completely that wherever you go, he goes. That he's, he's united himself to you in both body and in spirit. I can't unpack all of it, but it was in the passage. He knows what you're like. He he knows you all the way through. I mean, he knows that you are fearfully and wonderfully made and that you are right now a temple of the Holy Spirit. Like, what could give you a higher view of your own body than that God actually takes up residence with you in your body? Jesus looked down from the cross and he loved you. And it's for all these reasons, Paul says, you have the privilege, you know, to now honor him uh, and honor the people around you with your body. All right, we'll jump back into it in another week. Amen.